Well, good morning. I know it's a cool, it's a cool message series there. Um, so this was unexpected, but I'm still excited to be here today as we are going to continue in part two of this series, The Question Behind the Question. And this is a series, it's such a cool series. We've been looking at just a few of the 307 questions that Jesus asked while he was on the earth. And so today's question is found in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus and his disciples had just journeyed to a town uh, called Capernaum. And they arrived there and they entered the house. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks this question. He says, what were you arguing about on the road? Now, at first, it seems like just a simple question. Hey, what were you guys fussing about? You know, that's how we'd say it back home in West Virginia. What, what were you guys fussing about? Um, doesn't seem like a very big deal, but the response of the disciples implies, I think, that it kind of was a big deal because look at their response. They kept quiet. Hmm. Their response was to keep quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. If that wasn't a big deal, then why didn't they just answer him and say, well, this is what we were fussing about, you know? Why is it that they, say, they seemed to feel embarrassed about what they were arguing about? And they not, didn't want to seem to tell Jesus what it was they were arguing about. And do you really think Jesus didn't know what they were arguing about? He knew full well, right? So perhaps the question behind the question it's not a what question, it's actually a why question. And for me, I just imagine trying to get into the heart of Jesus and I'm thinking, he's, he's thinking, why are you arguing with each other? Come on guys, you're my disciples. You're my followers, you've been with me for years now. I, I've been teaching my ways to you, my ways of love pouring into you. You know my heart, so why? Why of all people would you, my followers, why would you argue with each other? Especially about such things. Who's the greatest? And so I wanna to suggest today that Jesus, he's asking us the same question. Why? Why do we argue? Now the disciples, they were arguing over greatness. And that is what some people argue about sometimes. But I think, I thought about this, and I thought, what do most of us, the majority of us, argue about most of the time? I think it's over this. Rightness. Right? Not who's great, but who's right. Am I right? Was Jess right, or was Pastor Pete right? Jess, right? Jess best event. We just seem to have this deep need in our souls to be right. You know, whether it's our political bent or whether it's the fact that the toilet paper roll, it should go over, not under, am I right? Or something in between. I didn't know I'd get applause for that one. That was great. We argue for our rightness. Now, I know some of you are thinking, you're like, I don't argue. I don't like, I avoid conflict at all costs, but just because you don't argue outwardly, it doesn't mean that you're not arguing inwardly. Confession time, here we go. Who has ever had an argument with someone all up here? <laughs> Happens pretty regularly, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have whole conversations in our heads that never actually take place, but man, we made our point 
we proved them wrong, we're right, we won that argument, we showed them. Sometimes then, sometimes we disguise our arguing. It kind of plays out in another form, it takes another form. It plays out in the form of like negative and critical comments, little backhanded comments, sarcasm, maybe gossip. So whether we're, we're the ones that, that, that we're arguing, let's say inside our heads, it's all just us, or we're masking it behind these subtle negative comments, or, or we are loud and obnoxious like Walter, we all have this tendency to argue for our rightness. Well, do you know who I'm talking about, Walter? I introduced him a few years back, and, and so if you weren't here then or you missed that Sunday, this is, this is Walter. crawlers all over? I guarantee you don't. You really need to think about how you talk to me. You're disrespectful without even knowing my reasons why. You talk over me. You are allowed to have a, a voice here in 2018, you know, but it's like you're crossing the line on being disrespectful each and every time. adorable it's Walter now I'll bet we all have a Walter in our lives don't we you were thinking of somebody that person who makes family gatherings or maybe work meetings or outings with our friends they just make it uncomfortable and stressful sometimes downright miserable are you thinking of a Walter in your life right now are you sitting next to them look if you are don't look at him, all right? Just look straight ahead. Just, just look at me and now wink at me. But wink with the eye opposite from where they're sitting, okay? Go ahead, go ahead. Wow, wink, 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 wink. Wow, there's a lot of winking. Winking. It's like I just made up that word. So whether we have Walters in our lives or we are a Walter in other people's lives, all this arguing and conflict, it leads to a, a very serious condition. And that condition is known as LOP, and you know it's serious when it has letters. Okay, but here, here's what it stands for. The condition is lack of peace. Now, there's all different kinds of peace that I think we all long for. We long for worldly peace, right? Peace among the nations in our world. We long for circumstantial peace, you know, when just life gets hectic and it's crazy. It's like, I just want some peace and quiet around me. We long for inner peace. You know, we carry the stress and the anxiety and worry inside of us, so we long for inner peace. But then there's this other kind of peace that I'm calling relational peace. We're functioning, when we're functioning the way that the creator has designed us to function with each other, then we experience this thing called relational peace. 
You see, our togetherness, it's then that it creates a space that is safe. We feel this sense of belonging. We feel like we're understood. We feel like we're cared for and we're respected. We are genuinely liked, most certainly loved. It's a space that just brings out our best, the best in us and the best in one another because it's this space where there's harmony among all the members of the relational circle. And if this doesn't describe our relational circles, well then we have a lack of relational peace. And chances are we are experiencing the types of things that the Apostle Paul spoke of in his letters, uh, both his letters to the uh, Christians living in Corinth and, and those living in Galatia. So he had said this, he says, I'm afraid that when I get there, I will find you different from what I would like you to be. Well, what's he expecting? What's he worried about? I'm afraid I'm gonna find you quarreling. I'm gonna find hot tempers. I'm gonna find insults and gossip and disorder. Instead of showing love among yourselves, you're always critical and catty. Catty, that idea where you use these deliberately hurtful words, but act like you're not. Now he wrote this to followers of Christ. Christians, and so I think he's asking us today that question, why? Why do you do this? You're my followers. I've taught you my ways, you know my heart. Why do you argue and quarrel and have all this negative interaction with each other? I can just hear in the why question, it's breaking his heart. And he's asking us, why are you being like those super chickens? Have you heard about the super chickens? This was fascinating. I got all kinds of cool stuff to share today too. Walters and super chickens. There was a biologist at Purdue University who devised this experiment, an experiment to make chickens more productive. And you know, chickens live in groups, so he created two groups. One was an average flock but then he created a second group of the individually most productive chickens. He called them super chickens. And he put them together in a super flock, and then each generation he selected only the most productive for the breeding. After six generations, what do you think he found? The average group, it was doing just fine. Absolutely fine, they were plump, they were fully feathered, egg production had increased dramatically. What about the super chickens? all but three were dead. You know why? Those three had pecked the rest to death. Now, why are you telling us that, Kim? Because <laughs> I think sometimes, unfortunately, we human beings, sometimes we peck each other to death relationally, don't we? We sometimes become the super chicken who has to be right and we peck at others, and we argue, and we quarrel, and we make critical and catty comments. So instead of our togetherness making us better, making us more productive, building us up, it's a place that wounds each other, and it devours our peace. So how, how in the world does this happen? How, how do we get in such a condition in our relational circles, whether it's family or friends or work. Well, I think the Apostle Paul states it simply and clearly in his letter to the followers of Christ in Colossae when he encouraged these people to do two really, really important things. So look at what the Apostle Paul says. He says, first of all, put up with each other, forgiving one another 
if anyone has a grievance against another. Now, these, these simple words are just so really, really super important because, you see, if we don't follow these two um, pieces of encouragement, two things will begin to pile up and they're going to rob us of the relational peace that we long for. And those two things are annoyances and grievances. You see, that, that phrase Paul uses, put up with each other. In other translations, it says bear with one another. And it just simply means put up with each other. You know why we need to put up with each other? Because people can be annoying, right? Am I right? Yeah. And you know why he says each other? Because we can be annoying too. Am I right? We don't like to admit that part. And that's why Paul says that we need to put up with each other. And if we don't, the annoyances just kind of pile up, pile up, pile up, and something really bad occurs. Here's what will happen. Annoyances become labels. You see, we no, we no longer see the person now. We, we see them and we know them for that thing that annoys us. Every time they're coming down the hall, that's all we see is that label. We see them through a negative and a critical lens. That label that we've placed on them. He's lazy. She's controlling. We no longer see the person. All we see is that thing that annoys us and that label that we've put on them. I challenge all of us, myself included, this week, take some time, get alone with God, and just think about your various relational circles, you know, your friends, your work associates, your family, your extended family, and see, see if you can't identify pretty easily some labels that you've placed on some people. Worse than allowing annoyances to pile up is, is allowing the grievances to pile up. You see, sometimes people say or do things that offend us or hurt us. Most of the times, they don't even realize it. And when we don't forgive, and we instead carry around those grievances, piling them up week after week and year after year, then those grievances turn into something. They turn into resentment. And resentment, it not only eats at the relational peace between people, but it eats away at our own internal peace. Our, our souls are not designed to carry around resentment. There was a book um, years ago called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And in it, two social psychologists, this is not a Christian book, just, just secular psychology, but it's fascinating. They describe how a fixation on our own righteousness, meaning our own rightness, I'm right, you're wrong, how it can just choke the life out of love. Hear that one, choke the life out of love. Listen to what they say. They say the vast majority of couples who drift apart do so slowly over time in a snowballing pattern of blame and self-justification. Each partner focuses on what the other one is doing wrong while justifying his or her own preferences, attitudes, and ways of doing things. From our standpoint, the, the people, the researchers, from our standpoint, therefore, misunderstandings, conflicts, personality differences, and even angry quarrels, they're not the assassins of love. What is? Self-justification. Arguing 
over rightness. The funny thing is, isn't this true? Am I right? We all have this tendency to raise the bar on others and lower the bar for ourselves, right? We give them lots of grief, but we give ourselves lots of grace, right? We tend to point out their faults, but, but they should take note of our good deeds. We place expectations on them, but we got a lot of excuses for ourselves. Am I right? Sad but true. So this is the truth that we all need to embrace this morning. The problem is not those people. The problem is we people. Do I have a we people up there? Apparently not. I I was going to be dramatic right at that time. We people. Apparently not. But we're the problem. Not me, but we, all of people, all of us in some way contribute to the argument, the arguing and the lack of peace in our relational circles. And so we each need to own our part if it's ever going to change. But maybe therein lies the real problem. For some of us, we don't believe it can change. We've just given up on that possibility of things being any different. You know, it is what it is. Nothing's going to change. And we just kind of feel helpless. We feel hopeless. But there is good news, folks. There is good news. God, indeed, has a solution. (laughs) And that solution is you and me. We are the solution. See, in his letter to the followers of Christ in Rome, Paul wrote this. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, not them, but you, me, live at peace with everyone. I'm the solution. You are the solution to this problem of a lack of relational peace. And I wonder how many are thinking, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble if I'm I'm the solution. We're in trouble now. But folks, we can do this. We can. We can move from helpless to empowered, and we can start by just giving up. Not giving up on the potential for relational peace, but rather giving up those things that have been hijacking the peace in our relationships. You see, we need to give up blame shifting. They're the problem. We need to give up our expectations and our judgments and the labels that we've put on people. We need to give up that victim mentality and our self-pity We need to give up our need to be right all the time. And then we need to take on a new role in our relational circles, in our families, in our workplaces, a new role in all of our relational circles that I'm going to call the role of the relational leader. If there's ever going to be relational peace, there must be a relational leader in that group of people. A very, very dear friend of mine uh, passed away just a week ago, unexpectedly, way too soon. Her name was Shona, and she lived in South Africa. So through, um, I guess, two decades of time, we saw each other about four times, four amazing trips, either in South Africa or she and her husband being here in America. But I didn't spend a lot of time, but the time I spent with her, I was always just kind of, she dropped spiritual wisdom on me over and over. I was just, it was so blessed my time with her. She was a beautiful, loving, and very wise follower of Christ. So one of the times 
we're in South Africa and we're doing a lot of driving and, and she would share so many things. And one time in the car, she shares how she felt like God had told her that he had given her this role in her family and it was the role of a relational leader in her family. And I was just fascinated by that, so I asked a lot of questions. So speaking of her adult children and their spouses and their grandchildren then, she said this. She said, the kind of family we're going to be depends on me. And then she went on and explained. She says, if I'm gossipy, then we're going to have a family that gossips about one another. If I talk negatively and I complain about other members of the family to another one, then we will have a family that talks negatively and we complain about one another. If I criticize the choices and the actions of family members, we will have a family who criticizes one another. If I'm argumentative, then we will have a family who argues over stupid little things for their rightness. The kind of family we're going to be depends on me. Or as the Apostle Paul said, if it's at all possible, as far it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Being a relational leader, it means choosing, I think a simple illustration to help us understand it means becoming a thermostat rather than a thermometer. You know, think about it. A thermometer simply reports the temperature of the room, right? It can't adjust it. It can't control the temperature. But a thermostat, on the other hand, it sets the desired temperature of a room, and then it will actively work to maintain it. it a great example is my parents' house. Um, when my mom was still alive and I would go visit them, the thermostat, it was always set to the same temperature. It was set to the eternal flames of hell. It'd be like 85 degrees in there. My mom would have a sweater on and she would turn to me and go, aren't you cold? No, mom, I'm not cold. No. When we act as thermometers, we don't see ourselves as being able to change the environment. It is what it is. The most we can do is just figure out how to deal with it, how to cope with it, how to tolerate it. But when we see ourselves as thermostats, as relational leaders, then we set out to regulate the temperature of the environment, to set the desired emotional and relational temperature, one that's positive, one that's good, one that's beneficial, one that promotes peace rather than hijacks it or destroys it. And then we actively work to maintain it because it takes maintenance, active maintenance. So how does a relational leader then do this? Well, let's go back to Paul's words to the Colossians. He said, put up with each other, forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against the other, another. So the first thing a relational leader does is overlook those annoyances. Overlook those annoyances. Instead of seeing that big thing that annoys us, we see the person behind the annoyance. We, we get rid of those labels that we've put on people and we remember that we too are sometimes annoying to others. Yes, we are. So we put up with others so that they'll put up with us. And then the relational leader chooses to do this, to forgive the grievances. We forgive that pile of, a grievance, of grievances that we've been holding onto and then we forgive all of the grievances that will come along in the future, the big ones and the small ones. 
We do not allow resentment to grow. We just don't allow it. My sister shared something recently. She was giving her testimony in her church and she had shared this. She says, uh, she says that every morning she wakes up, she forgives her husband for the things that he will do that day to annoy her. She said she just goes ahead because she knows he's going to, so she gets it out of the way. She starts the day with a clean slate. And in doing so, she doesn't allow the annoyances to become labels or the grievances to turn to resentment. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he says this, so then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for building one another up. Well, overlooking the annoyances and forgiving the grievances, those are what we pursue for making peace. They make peace. But what about this second part, and for building one another up? Well, what, what builds people up? Scripture tells us real plain and clearly, love builds up, love. So a relational leader then overlooks annoyances, forgives grievances, and leads with love. Now before we get all confused about love and what it is, just some kind of a warm feeling or affection, scripture spells out for us very clearly in very practical terms what love is, how we lead with love, and we find it again in Corinthians. Read at almost every wedding you ever go to, right? But this is life, not just weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. Doesn't let the grievances pile up. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Someone wants to hear it this way today. In other words, a relational leader is patient and a relational leader is kind. A relational leader doesn't envy other people and they don't boast and they're not full of proud. A relational leader never does or says anything that dishonors others, never. They're not self-seeking, they're not easily angered. Relational leaders keep no record of wrongs. Relational leaders protect others and they persevere in protecting the peace. They don't argue unnecessarily and they don't need to fight for their rightness. That's how a relational leader leads with love. Leading with love. Being a relational leader who seeks to bring peace to a family or, or to any relational circle and maintain it, it is hard work, folks. It's not a one and done. It's an ongoing, active, hard work kind of thing, but it is so worth it. A family or a relational circle that actually changes and becomes a place that is safe and comfortable, where there's understanding and there's respect for one another, where people are built up by love, made their best selves, where we are better together because we function harmoniously. When that change actually occurs, and our relational circle becomes a place of peace, or at least more peaceful than it was, man, it is so worth our effort, so worth it, the effort that it takes to achieve it and even to maintain it. Now, it's possible, though, that, that our efforts as a relational leader will only make a dent, you know, in a relational conflict and in arguing. Or worse, it might make no difference at all. 
So will it just be wasted time and wasted energy? Not at all. Not at all, because in the book of Proverbs, it tells us this, those who promote peace, not that they achieve it, but they promote it, all they can to promote it, they have joy. Well, how can you have joy if your efforts change nothing? We will experience joy because we have changed. The joy is in our change, because we've chosen forgiveness and we've dumped that load of grievances and all the resentment that's built up inside of us because we've chosen to overlook those annoyances and no longer label people. And because we are learning what love really is, how to love the way Jesus loves. Our character is being molded and shaped into the likeness of the beautiful one who created us, the one who makes peace possible. Look at these words from Paul to the Colossians and to us today. Let the peace of Christ, the inner calm of the one who walks daily with him, be the controlling factor in your hearts. I love that word. Let his peace be the controlling factor in your hearts. You see, there's no peace in us, in our souls, and there's no way to, that we can pursue peace in our relationships without the peace of Christ being the controlling factor in our hearts. We just don't have what it takes to pursue it and what it takes, you know, the work at maintaining it without the peace of Christ within us. And the peace of Christ comes to us when we come to the understanding that Christ, the Lord Jesus, is our creator. He made us and he died on a cross for us so that we could see the beauty of his character and the depth of his love, a love that never forces himself on us, but instead sacrifices himself for us. So when we choose to trust and follow and to, to walk daily with him, it's then and only then that this peace of Christ can and will be the controlling factor in our hearts, strengthening us to pursue peace and to working to, to maintain in it, in our families, in our workplaces, among our friends and all of our relational circles. A few years back, um, I had a friend of mine tell me the coolest story. I got the biggest kick out of it. And I think it's very much evidence saying that she is a relational leader in her family, no doubt. So she told me how she had left voice messages for each of her four children who ranged in age at that time from age 16 through 24. And what she had left in their message was how proud she was of each one of them, she and, and her husband, their father. But it wasn't just that general, oh honey, I'm so proud of you just for being you. It was like her message listed these very specific things that were unique to each child. So it was very personal. Now the message to the youngest son, it kind of confused him. You see, the younger son had, he was struggling with two things. He, he, he was not wearing his retainer. You know, they'd done all this work and they had this retainer now, spent all that money. He wasn't wearing his retainer like he needed to daily. And then he also wasn't practicing his music. So in the voice message to him, mom lists these things that they are very proud of. And then she ends it by saying, and I am so proud of you for wearing your retainer every day to maintain that beautiful smile of yours. And I'm so proud of you for practicing your music every day. Well, apparently he goes to his siblings and is like, did you get a message from mom? Was it weird? Did it make sense? You know, he's asking, finally he comes to mom and he's like, mom, are you messing with me? Are you being sarcastic? 
And her response to him was, no, I wasn't being sarcastic and I'm not messing with you. I said what I did because I know that you are fully capable of doing these things. Guess what happened? He started wearing his retainer and practicing his music every day. Because she said to him, I know you are fully capable of doing these things. And something rose up inside of him. The reason I tell you that story is to say this. FCF Church, I am so proud of you for taking on the role of relational leaders in your families and at work and in your friendships. And FCF, I am so proud of you for overlooking annoyances and putting up with people and acknowledging that you can be annoying too. And FCF, I am so proud of you for dropping all those labels and seeing people now the way Jesus sees them. And FCF, I'm so proud of you for forgiving all those grievances and getting rid of the resentment in your hearts. And FCF, I'm so proud of you for leading with love. FCF, I'm not messing with you. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm proud of you because Christ Jesus is our creator. He made us, he designed us, and he empowers us to be fully capable of all these things. Am I right? Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you. We thank you that we are fully capable. We're not helpless, we're not hopeless. You've designed us and you empower us now to live out this way of life. So Lord, I pray for all of us that we might step it up and become relational leaders. No more arguing, no more need to be right all the time, but we will do all that promotes peace. And as far as it depends on us, we will live at peace with everyone in our relational circles. And Lord, as a result of that, that we might all experience the joy from promoting such peace. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.